Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back, and thank you for listening to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Hope everybody is doing well. I am your host. I am Jordan Porter, and I'm joined by Yvonne Brandenburg. And then, of course, for the series, we are still joined by Brittany Laughlin, our VTS in neurology. We haven't scared her off yet. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Three weeks in. (laughs) I mean, I feel like it's the other way around. Usually everyone gets scared of neuro, so they're like, nope. (laughs) No, I'm excited because I've definitely learned a bunch of stuff in the last two episodes. Well, and um, I'm excited that you're doing it. So I don't have to because right? I am not a huge fan of neuro. <laughs> I, think we, I think we would have kind of done these episode notes really well, but. I mean, I did much. this episode's notes and right, I'm well, proud of this. <laughs> that's because this is definitely like an internal medicine. 100%. I mean, there's yeah. definitely stuff in these that I was like, hmm. <laughs> like, oh, you that's focus, why that does that you focus on different details than what i focus on it's just oh. <laughs> different you know yes. i mean like as medicine you know internal medicine has different things that they're like oh and then isn't that amazing like how like even though we all still fall under internal medicine it's very like yeah there's just different focuses to mm-hmm. like how I look at hepatic encephalopathy and how you look at hepatic encephalopathy. (laughs) This will be kind of cool to see Brittany's take on some of this stuff. I know. I know. Before (laughs) we get into it though, we do have one review from a couple weeks ago that we just want to mention. Um, This is from Miss Mandy Lynn 10. So hit us up Miss Mandy Lynn and let us know your address. Uh, Send us an email so we can get you a sticker. But she says, great study material for my hopeful SAIM VTS boards. Listen to a lot of podcasts, but I've turned all of my attention to these ladies. This pod is so informative and helpful. I'm eagerly listening to them and taking notes to add in to my study material. Thanks for what you're doing for our profession, ladies. <laughs> my heart. Aww. I, I know, it. so sweet. See, Brittany, you're, you're going to help with your like neuro VTS like board member or board members, neuro VTS applicants that's what i'm trying to say it's kind of exciting yeah (laughs) you can be like listen to these episodes with me (laughs) i mentioned it to one of the neurotechs i was like we have a neuro vts coming on um she's gonna do like six episodes with us so just a heads up (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty cool to have that though like you know why not? Yeah. You're all part of internal medicine. Like we, we, yeah. we say this in case you don't know what we mean by that. <laughs> I guess I should explain it to people who don't know what that means. It's the American college of veterinary internal medicine. That's what it is. So anyways, ACVM. So under ACVM, their umbrella for the doctors is the same as for AMVT, which is, which is ours. Um, so we have small animal internal medicine. We have large animal internal medicine, neurology, oncology cardiology am i missing anybody no i think five of us right yeah so all five of us are we're subspecialties under the internal medicine specialty so technically like jordan and i are small animal internal medicine we just call ourselves internal medicine which you know 
It's a, it's a generalized term for it's us, I feel term. like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then Brittany's under neurology. That's where she got her VTS. And so, you know, yes, we're all interlinked. We see things a little bit differently, but um, a lot of the stuff that we do is very similar, which is why we're under that category of internal medicine. So that's why we say yeah. we're all internal medicine. <laughs> that's why. So this week, sticking with our internal medicine and neurology theme, we're doing hepatic encephalopathy. So when the liver affects the brain. So obviously when I did these notes, I was very focused on the liver portion. <laughs> of this. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Brittany's going to be like, so in this part. <laughs> I, I did put a little snippet in there about what it does to the brain, like a mm-hmm. specific area in the brain that becomes swollen. Mm-hmm. I feel I like Brittany might that. be the one to like really dive into that section. Yeah. Mm. I mean, so, <laughs> she's like, no, from a, to. like, <laughs> from a nursing, you know, standpoint or whatever, like it kind of is what it is, I guess. I don't <laughs> say that. Like, do you really get focused on which specific part of the liver is affected by something? Like not, you know, no, it's all the same. All. yeah most of the times that's true that's true so this week's episode though is approved for one hour of race approved ce at the internal medicine for vet techs membership site you can go to the podcast course and just i have the episodes up there as well as the five quiz questions to complete to get your certificate non-members can use this as self-study um in most places yeah my states don't do self-study like that's not a thing oh (laughs) Neither one of my states that I have licenses in. Interesting. What about you, Brittany? Do you have any self-study hours you can apply to your licensure? Um, do you know? I don't know. I'm not sure. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so all of my like CE has to be race, to, race approved in order to account for my license. But Yvonne can do some like a few hours of self-study where it doesn't have to be race approved. Yeah. So uh, in California, I think you have to do a minimum that number of the 20 that are race approved, then you can have some non-race approved continuing education, like um, journal articles or yeah. like meetings that aren't necessarily race approved, but you can also do self-study. So that's like, um, they include like reading or studying um i think there's even a category for taking like classes yeah like it's kind of crazy so again (laughs) you know i'm not a hundred percent sure to be honest (laughs) yeah which sounds terrible but like i never think about it because in a typical year i usually get well (laughs) beyond the number of c credits that i need this year is different i guess yeah um, so I never, I've never honestly really paid attention to like what counts and what doesn't. I, I want, if I had, if you forced me to answer, I'd say that it has to be like, like a, either like virtual or like in-person type mm. CE thing. Yeah. yeah. That's what mine is. I, I have something, to have something that gives you some sort of certificate of yes, you did this. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Well, and I know like, um, when we talked about for like Britain, um, they have the CPD and, and it actually, they don't have a governing body for the courses. Um, you just have to, there's like a whole process, which is kind of cool. Actually, um, Jordan and I have talked about using some of their stuff just as like to help with a study guide. Um, just cause it's, it's really fascinating. So yeah, again, depends on where you are, what state you're in, what country you're in, how you can get your continuing education for your licensure, which 
maybe someday in the United States, everyone will have the same requirements. <laughs> mm-hmm. But for now, that's not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> One day. We'll see. Someday. Someday we'll be all unified. <laughs> yeah. So the definition of hepatic encephalopathy is a neurological disorder that is a result of a porter systemic shunt or just liver dysfunction. But a lot of the times, I mean, I think 98% of the times I see it, I see it from a shunt and not just from like general liver dysfunction. Um, Yeah. And I think um, if we talked about it in the liver episode too. So um, yes, and we touched on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for this episode, I think it's a good idea to just go back if, if you want to re- like refresh on the liver stuff. So with the liver series was 40 episodes, 44 through 49 and liver shunt specifically was 49 where we kind of touched on hepatic encephalopathy, but we said, we're going to do an episode on it. So <laughs> this is that episode. <laughs> so just a little bit of a refresher that I kind of pulled from our previous episodes, just on the liver in general and how it's supposed to function. So remember that the liver is the main filter for blood from the GI tract. It's the main site of drug metabolism and immune response. So what is supposed to happen is that we have the hepatic portal system that includes blood vessels and transport blood from the capillaries to the, from the intestines to the hepatic sinusoids, like we talked about in the basics episode. Um, and the sinusoids are where the function is to eat and remove those large number of circulating things that shouldn't be there, like dead blood cells, um, toxins, worn out, I mean, bacteria, and just the lining, anything infectious that could enter through the lining of the GI tract. So the liver works very closely with the GI tract, again, by producing bile acids. The only reason why I'm bringing up bile acids again is because this is how we determine (laughs) our liver dysfunction. And so bile acids is produced within the liver by those hepatic cells. And then it, when the liver produces bile, it's secreted into small canals that merge together to form the bile ducts. Now the bile ducts and things like that, I'm not going to dive into too much further just because that doesn't really have anything to do with where we're going next. It's just, that is a part as to why we check (laughs) our bile acids in our patients, because it can tell us when there's dysfunction. So in a normal patient, blood drains from the abdominal organs, such as like the spleen, the pancreas, and the intestines, and then travels to the liver. Portal blood travels through the liver, and this is where it detoxifies and metabolizes. After the liver, blood is released back into systemic circulation. So what happens when it's, when the blood is going through the liver is ammonia is going to be the key here because ammonia is what we're going to see high levels of in our hepatic encephalopathy patients. So ammonia is typically removed by the hepatocytes within the liver, and then it's converted to amino acids or urea, which is then excreted by the kidneys through the urine in healthy animals. So that is how it's normally supposed to happen. So if a shunt is present in these patients, um, blood, what happens is blood then bypasses the liver. So it just skips over the liver completely and which in that case, there's no detoxification or metabolization of this blood and blood bypasses the liver and then just goes directly back into circulation. So that ammonia that we need removed by the hepatocytes within the liver is not, that doesn't get to happen. So it doesn't get to get converted into amino acids and doesn't get to get excreted by the kidneys. So this, we talked about it in that episode. It's, it's, 
episode 49. Yeah, in episode 49. I mean, if you've ever seen a dog with, well, I'm going to say dog because it's mostly dogs. Um, If you've ever seen a dog with uh, portosystemic shunt and it's like right after they eat and all that stuff just pours into their blood system Mm -hmm. and it it just makes them act all funky and wonky and look like they're drunk. And that's, that's part of it. Right. And, and then we get, if it gets worse and worse and worse, cause it's not treated, that's kind of where the, we get into hepatic encephalopathy. So. Yeah, exactly. Cause that ammonia level just gets to build up within the blood. So there are three phases of hepatic encephalopathy, which I guess like I know about the hepatic encephalopathy, but I didn't realize about the phases, mm. but I was like, oh, look at me learning stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so due to the decreased liver function or like the direct access to the bloodstream. So that's where it can be either a portosystemic shunt or it can be liver dysfunction, just like chronic liver disease. Mm. Um, it, it skips, it skips the filtration system with a shunt or the liver just can't filter properly because it's diseased. So toxic metabolites in the blood increases. So as it circulates through the body each time, like there's just more and more toxins within the bloodstream that aren't being able to be filtered out. So ammonia and other waste products are formed by the proteins from the digestive tract and food breakdown. So that's where Yvonne was kind of saying where a lot of times we'll see subtle signs after our patient eats is because when their GI tract is starting to try to break down these, these proteins from their food, ammonia and other waste products are being formed by that process and then being dumped into the bloodstream. So that's where a lot of times we'll see that dysfunction. What? I know. Homeostasis. What? We never talk about that. (laughs) So again, if our liver isn't able to break down that ammonia or remove that ammonia, we're going to see changes in the blood serum that are caused by like amino acid imbalance, because typically the ammonia is converted into amino acids, but it it can't do that. So that we're seeing a, just an imbalance there of our amino acid levels in our bloodstream. And, and amino then, acids are super important just for so many things. So if you don't have enough amino acids, that becomes a problem too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you have toxins, you don't have enough amino acids, and then brain cells can become damaged from the toxins circulating through the blood. So it actually causes changes in the neurotransmitters. I'm probably going to butcher this, Brittany, so I'm sorry, but uh, monoamine and but it can impair cognition. So that's where we see that kind of like drunk ataxia look to our patients after they eat. Interesting. So does this, so the three phases, I'm guessing that means all three phases are present. It's just to what degree and how severe they get. Exactly. It's kind of like one after the next. So you don't have your ammonia being filtered out. Mm. So then in turn, you have amino acids just not being high enough in the bloodstreams. And then in turn, all of that can cause the brain cells to become damaged. It's all sorts of not good. So this can be caused by chronic liver dysfunction, like I said, or congenital shunt. There's four factors for hepatic encephalopathy. Um, So ammonia, obviously we talked about that a ton already. Ammonia is like what I just automatically think of. Here's where I learned something because (laughs) the mercaptan apparently is a thing. And I was like, what is this? I've never heard of that word before. Me either. So I went on a hunt to figure (laughs) out. You neither, Brittany? No. 
Okay, yeah. cool. Woohoo, we're all learning. Cool. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, well, if Mercaptan's so important with HE, then like, what is it? So Mercaptans are actually like a very toxic substance. They're sulfur containing compounds. And the, these usually come from like colonic bacterial metabolism. Um, so obviously when our GI tract mm. is trying to break down food, they produce this Mercaptan and it's actually metabolism of methionine. I've heard of methionine, not that I knew what it is, still don't know what it is. But so, so the idea is because again, things are bypassing the liver. So this mm-hmm. Mercaptan is made by the bacteria that break down things and then just absorb directly into the bloodstream. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. And then exactly yeah. like, so like ammonia isn't able to be removed by the liver. Neither is more cap, like neither are more captains. Um, so they mm. escape detoxification with hepatic failure um, or shunting. So this just allows them to just kind of recirculate and studies have shown that even just small amounts can cause like that reversible coma. So that's where we see those comatose patients, but it is reversible because we can correct the problem. Oh my God. Can I just tell you that I just like a light bulb went on for me. <laughs> this is hilarious. So, okay. This is okay. Cause we kind of know the treatment plan, right? Yeah. We're, we're going to talk about this. So, and you can tell me if I'm right, because I feel like you're, you're laughing at me right now. So the mercaptans are broken down by metabolism, by bacteria in the guts. Yes. Which if we decrease that bacteria. Yes. They don't make as many mercaptans, which is why we use metronidazole. Yes, exactly. So (gasps) which like the light bulb went off on my head too. When I was writing these notes, I was like, that's why we use Metro. (laughs) I'm going to go to work and I'm going to be like, so they have excess mercaptans circulating in their blood right now. We need to give them metronidazole. (laughs) (laughs) It's not not just ammonia that causes these problems. Wow. That's crazy. And and then the other two factors obviously are going to be our amino acids imbalance, like we talked about. And then there's actually like GABA benzodiazepine receptor abnormalities. I couldn't find a lot of information on that, but it does, Brittany, um, do you know anything? This like hinders the receptors ability to actually like function is what I was getting Yeah, like basically the, uh, in the stuff that I remember studying about it, it's just that it alters the way some of the like receptors are receiving things or not receiving Mm -hmm. things. And so it, then it's then in turn, cascading its imbalance into the function of the brain as well and you know what I mean yeah because I was there's definitely lots of like literature about don't use benzodiazepines in these patients (laughs) well I think because like benzos in general are gonna increase um because they're also excreted by the or metabolized in the liver too right I I mean so many things yeah um yeah but in general so in general benzos work by uh helping gaba um do its job which is calm the nerves down or call mm. calm the neurons down and so if you're giving them benzos when they already are having that increased like lack of transmission in their neurons then you're making them even less able to transmit information do you know what i mean mm-hmm. so that's this, they're uh, even dumpier you get <laughs> even more coma e yeah because yeah. you're making them less and less so you're excitatory yeah okay. wow okay wait so is this the threshold thing that you were talking about 
I mean, to some, to some extent, yeah. Like you're making it mm. so that the, the, the neurons themselves need more, uh, input to fire. And, and mm. so when you call, I mean, that's why benzos work for seizures. You want to stop the seizure by calming the nerves down or making it oh, harder right. for them to fire. Okay. Um, and so then that that's kind of a little bit, my guess, short of doing a whole bunch of research right now. Is <laughs> 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 no, that I mean, by adding sense, benzos yeah. to this already, you know, the these Increased byproducts function. that yeah. are causing these functional changes, then you're you're kind of stacking lower ability to fire effectively on top of drugs making it harder to fire effectively. <laughs> and so you're just like Dang. kind of sedating them down into into more trouble zone you know crazy so i love that this is all like coming together (laughs) kind of cool (laughs) so i made more notes about brain stuff because i was like okay here we go (laughs) so (laughs) astrocytes are affected too in these patients so astrocytes are like a subtype of glial cells in the central nervous system yes I don't hundred percent know what that means, but I was like, man, I wrote some brain stuff down and I'm super excited. <laughs> All right. But- now it's Brittany's turn to tell us what the heck you just wrote. Okay. So, <laughs> so actually this, this actually makes a whole lot of sense too. So in the first, uh, lecture or first podcast, uh, I think I kind of offhand mentioned the blood brain barrier and how the endothelial cells don't have fenestrations. And there's these extra non-neuronal cells called the astrocytes that form another layer on top of the endothelial cells of the vessels, right? So the blood brain barriers, two layers of cells that helps keep stuff out. Right. Um, and so what, what you're saying here, Jordan, is that because of all this excess ammonia and inflammatory cytokines and all this other stuff that's going on, because the stuff's not being filtered out by the liver that causes swelling in particular in the astrocytes. So Mm -hmm. it's going to break down the blood brain barrier a little bit because we're losing that second layer of protection. And so then it becomes a little easier for things to leak in and out of the the central nervous system when it shouldn't be able to even worse, which makes sense how you start seeing brainy signs because that mm-hmm. layer of protection is starting to fail and so you get those byproducts building up inside the the nervous tissue itself and causing trouble with neuron firing and brain damage this is like a horrible vicious cycle <laughs> Dang. yeah no wonder they get so much no wonder it doesn't get better and it just gets worse that's really sad yeah hmm can I just say how much I appreciate that Brittany is on this episode with us? <laughs> I'm like, ooh. It does kind of bring it all like together. She's like, but see, I can see it clicking with her though too, where you're like, oh, that's what's yeah. happening. <laughs> like, I mean, we do yeah. like every episode. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. If you had asked me, you know, what is this now, December, a year and a half ago, I probably would have been like, oh, yeah, totes. But then I took a test and then I promptly was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I did too. Yeah. <laughs> for all of you studying for any kind of test or any kind of board, we've been there, we've done that. And we're, I'm sure at some point, all of us will probably be there again for something because that's how we roll. Um, <laughs> but, but just know you may not have to retain this knowledge forever. You just need to know it for tests. And then when you do things in the future, you can be like, wow, that's why. I don't know that you're going to hold on to like- the. Mercaptains and take that back to work. <laughs> yeah. 
but even still, like, even if you don't retain stuff forever, then it makes things like when you do stuff like this, try to, you know, mm-hmm. look into something again, then you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. Cause I know this level of stuff about it. And so now this extra level of knowledge makes more sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, and uh, we've said it before, that's why we love doing this because we have aha moments yeah. and maybe those aha moments will stay with us and maybe they won't. <laughs> so this right yeah so this is um so one (laughs) of the other notes she put in here she one of the other notes jordan put in here which is interesting is which goes along with the swelling which is crazy so it leads to edema in the brain and a herniation which sounds horrible and then when we have acute liver failure acute severe hg this is usually what happens is you get that swelling, the, the herniation, and that's why they're so bad. Um, and I feel like if they're that severe, I don't like, is that like end game or can they recover from, from any of that? That's, I guess that's the question. Yeah. I'm not sure. I can't say that at least for me, I can't say that we've seen a lot of like really, really horrifically like comatose usually they're just like really wonky (laughs) they're still awake they just aren't quite right in the head yeah I haven't had any like you know I've I've had a true like comatose patient and yeah he did really well like he he was like everything that I was writing down yeah everything I was writing down in these notes today I was like oh my god this was this dog (laughs) and this is why this was happening I know as we're talking about it like I have that one patient that I'm thinking of and I'm like oh yeah exactly yeah because mine was like I remember like getting he was in a dog bed and I got him out and he was like just limp and I put him on a scale like a baby Mm. scale and I was like oh my God. And I was like freaking out and trying to get a catheter in like ASAP. But then like the moment we started treatment, like maybe an hour later, then he could lift his head. And then an hour after that, he would be like circling or like ataxic in the cage. Like it was just like backwards, but like in a good way of like the <laughs> neurologic <moving>. signs. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Reversing the, reversing the disease. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was and really, guess, really interesting. I guess it probably depends too. Like, um, is this like first treatment or is it a patient that you've been seeing and treating and it's just progressively getting worse too? So I guess it, I guess it probably depends on, you know, are there, are there more drugs we can give to combat it or, you know, have we kind of exhausted our treatment? So I, I, interesting. Hmm. And, and again, with clients, it's quality of life too, right? Mm -hmm. So how much, do they well, when you spend, see how much do they want to do the nursing care and yeah and when you yeah. see a patient like that though too it's like it's kind of terrifying because you're like oh my god can we bring them back but then yeah it's it was like it's like magic um yeah I think it just depends <laughs> depends on the dog <laughs> yeah so our species breed age um I basically just copy and pasted from our <laughs> shunting episode right. all of them <laughs> yep. so young to old dogs and cats depending on the cause of the liver dysfunction like chronic liver disease versus portosystemic shunts but common breeds for our shunt patients include Yorkies, miniature schnauzers, Irish, Irish wolfhounds, Karen terriers, Ugh. Maltese's. The dog that I had was a Maltese. Um, <laughs> yeah. Australian cattle dogs, golden retrievers, old English sheepdogs, and labs. Um, yeah, I had a Japanese or a what Japanese chin? I had a Japanese oh, yeah. chin that that had it, 
and some of these other ones, but the Japanese chin is the one that I'm thinking of the most. I couldn't imagine an Irish wolfhound. When you said that, I was like, that I know, right? As a hepatic encephalopic <laughs> patient. Oh my god. Well, that, that and like would that would kind of giant. That would suck too, because like large breed dogs are more susceptible to getting the intrahepatic shunt. So it's like you can't fix that as easily. Right. right. Like that's so much harder to fix. Okay, so can I just say something kind of weird? Usually. I mean, this is where I go, right? So when we talk, so for hepatic encephalopathy, I always think portosystemic shunt, but severe chronic liver disease also leads to it. And I, I, it's Yeah, because you got to think if you have a patient who's developing like liver cirrhosis, then yeah. you're, and same thing, we talked about microvascular dysplasia too. yeah. So, it's interesting because I don't really think of them as hepatic encephalopic. Like I don't say that, but I say, yeah. oh, it's severe liver disease. Yeah. But, they're, <laughs> but I'm like, they but are at risk for hepatic encephalopathy. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Gotta expand my mind a little bit. <laughs> so our history, our clinical signs can vary. They could be very mild to very severe. So weakness. And again, that might be that subtle sign where like they're eating. They walk away from the food dish and they stagger a little bit for maybe 30 minutes after eating, but the owners aren't really, or they don't want to get up or yeah, yeah. they're just like slow. They don't really want to play, um, drooling behavior changes like aggression can occur. Um, ataxia, of course, aimless wandering as (laughs) isn't that like a, is that a four, that's a forebrain thing. I remember this. (laughs) (laughs) We retain stuff from last week's episode. Yeah. (laughs) That's swelling in the forebrain there. Mm -hmm. So circling, head pressing, sudden blindness, collapse, seizures, and coma, Um, which that would be a bummer if you had like a hepatic encephalopathy dog come in having seizures and then like the need to not give benzos, but to give benzos. Oh, like, do you come across that ever? That's the first thing that everybody does. Like they put a catheter in and give a benzo. But I guess you don't really know that it's it's hepatic encephalopathy. Right. Right. Ooh, that's scary. Your benzo is probably, it's like, yeah, the cheap date situation. It's probably going to knock them out pretty hard. I mean, I can't say that we've had them so bad. Usually, um, at least in my experience, like seizures aren't, aren't a huge presenting part of mm-hmm. the history. Usually they're coming um, for all this other stuff for these other things. Usually they come to, to us because the owner's like, my dog acts weird sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you figure out, like you write and, then, and you're like, this is internal yeah. medicine. And we're like, well, <laughs> this is, yeah, this is a six month old Yorkie. And it seems like he acts mm-hmm. weird after he eats and, you know, like usually yeah. they, owners have noticed something's wrong, you know, a little bit ahead of time. Every, I think I can think of like one or two cases that we've had where like the owners come in because their dog is doing something a little more specific, leaner, like the like circling head pressing type stuff. Um, so they come to see us. And then when, once we kind of press a little bit, then we'll find out like, you know, (laughs) it kind of goes back to that, like, okay, this is a puppy. Do you realize your puppy doesn't act like a puppy? And they're like, well, gosh, I just thought he was just a super chill dog. Your dog's sick. That's why he's super chill. Do you want us to fix it? Cause it's probably going to be, <laughs> be a different experience for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I would think that sudden blindness collapse and seizures would be the presenting for like an emergency yeah. patient. 
yeah. not and necessarily it referred for you know right. specialty yeah um, that's what I mean it's like usually we'll see them with like these weird behaviors and and you know strange gait and things like that and I, I I think I can think of maybe one that we had that was having seizures and yeah. and was fairly bad off but usually they're just acting funny so we kind of see them quote unquote earlier um right in this so I haven't I personally haven't seen the like really 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 bad ones and maybe they've come through ER and then just you know not part of that conversation so whether the right owners are like because I would guess like I would guess collapse seizure coma right is probably the extreme end of it I want to say that's like what my my extreme case was where I think the dog had a seizure first then collapsed and then came in comatose and like Mm -hmm. it was just like a stair step to like the bad yeah the worst it could get so it's interesting. Did you, by any chance, when you were looking this up, did you see why they specifically said behavior changes and aggression? No. Huh. It'd be interesting. Like why specifically aggression? Per- personally, I would argue not. <laughs> I, would I, know, argue I was more... like, I don't think I've, I think I've uh, seen yeah. one aggressive patient, but I think that was his personality. Yeah. <laughs> I would it's not to say that's argue. not possible, but usually it's like the ones that I've, I've had in my practice there it's behavior changes and that they're just, you know, Chill. Not they're just quiet with yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Kind of dopey. A little bit space cadet. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of dumb, dumb. Yeah. Most of mine yeah. have been really sweet, but kind of derpy. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only like, thing oh, I yeah. could think of is if like, you know how we talked about how like dogs can sense an oncoming seizure, if they can sense right. a change of like pressures in their brain or just like things just not feeling yeah. right maybe you get those dogs who are like stay away from me kind of thing because like, they're I'm, scared yeah. or sick exactly or, yeah. exactly. Then, yeah. or they're yeah. dizzy or they can't see straight you know it's like that's the only thing I could think yeah it's not yeah it's not to say that they couldn't absolutely have some like aggressive changes but that's, I wouldn't classify that as like you know, a hallmark of specifically. Um, I know. I was like, hepatic oh. the way, the way it was written was very like, it's kind of like rabies. Like they're just like all of a sudden, but I'm like, <laughs> I think it's more of just a, like, they mm. don't feel right. And so they just are trying to protect themselves. But yeah, yeah. like mm, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was like, huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so our differential- we all thought the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> our differential diagnosis list. I just kind of ran through like what pops into my head if I see a patient come in like this. So I have toxins, trauma, hypertension, because hypertension does crazy things. Of course, cancer, because cancer does whatever it wants. Um, GI disorders, obviously, if some of our patients are showing some weird drooling symptoms um, or just weird like ataxia after eating or abnormal eating behaviors, and then just other neural disorders that I'm just not smart enough to list out completely. Um, I mean, the only one that I would specifically probably put my finger on would be some sort of itis, like, like some meningitis, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, they can present very similarly to this. And especially if they're like, you know, little toy breed, fluffy things and, um, you know, meningitis is probably on the list mm-hmm. for us anyway. Yeah. And I can see, um, like when we're talking about collapse and comatose, like like make sure it's not cardiac disease too. So mm-hmm. yeah. And I didn't put diabetes on there. Like if it's a hypoglycemic yeah. episode, I, especially like if you have a young Yorkie. Diagnosis is everything. Yeah. 
All the things. Yeah, all the things. <laughs> so diagnostics are going to be pretty basic though. Our CBC biochemistries are going to tell us some maybe elevated liver enzymes, but not always, but um, checking our blood ammonia levels, which I don't have that capability in my hospital. Really? So I sat cartridge, one of them, you can get it on. And then if you're running um, the IDEX and you have individual slides, this is the tricky part. Cause I always look for ammonia, but it's NH3. <laughs> so the slide says NH3. It does not say ammonia. And I'm like, oh, why can't you just put ammonia on here? But they don't. <laughs> right. Um, we talked about bile acids extensively in episodes 47 and episodes 49, just about how to do it, what it's looking for. So I'm not going to run through that too much because I'm worried that we'll just go over in time like crazy if I <laughs> rerun through the bioacids. But bioacids testing is, is what is going to tell us what, like that we do have liver dysfunction. So obviously we're looking for those bioacid numbers to be extremely high um, for these patients, especially if we're thinking hepatic encephalopathy. Mm -hmm. Radiographs and ultrasound can detect microhepatica. Ultrasound sometimes with a skilled ultrasonographer is able to detect shunting if it's extravascular shunting usually. I found it interesting that sometimes they said MRIs are helpful, but a lot of the reading was like, we don't really recommend MRI for like hepatic encephalopathy if you're pushing towards that, yeah. but it can be helpful in distinguishing like other like neurological disorders. Yeah. Um, I would or, guess that because you have to do anesthesia for an MRI, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. So I would so, think most of the drugs are going to cause more issues for anesthesia. Yeah. Did you like my notes of, about like these um, deposits? <laughs> Manganese and the basal ganglia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She said <laughs> yeah, that. yeah, she said that. that. So pretty. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? What? Manganese and the basal ganglia. Manganese okay. and basal ganglia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that. Yeah. I think it, at least in my experience, like we'll do the MRIs, like you said, Yvonne, just to like make sure that there's not some other cause that um, we're thinking of. But if we have, you know, evidence wild, towards a wild ammonia <laughs> results and wild bile acid results, <laughs> yeah, right? usually like, we'll start mm -hmm. with those things plus maybe an ultrasound or maybe even a CTA. Um, depending on the, the breed and stuff, the CT angiogram might be more helpful, but, mm. um, but yeah, MRI is kind of like not necessarily the most highest priority of. Yeah. It, did, for it us. definitely didn't sound like that. It was kind of like one of those things where I'm like, if the symptoms fit the bio acids right. fit, then like treat for hepatic encephalopathy. Right. But obviously right. if symptoms persist despite treatment, then you're going right. to run towards an MRI. Right. See what else potentially could be going on. Yeah. Yeah. So treatment, Yvonne already touched on some of the treatment here, um, but hospitalization is going to be key for these guys. So the goals for treatment is going to be obviously to lower Sorry. our blood ammonia levels. We want to improve our amino acids imbalance and then um, benzodiazepine antagonists. And then, um, mm. which makes sense now that you explained that like those receptors aren't receiving as well as they normally should. Okay, so I'm you're trying to combat that brain fart. Like, what is a benzodiazepine antagonist? Well, that would be so. Would you give what do we give to reverse? We give flumazenil to reverse midazolam, right? So, would you give flumazenil in these patients? Uh, maybe I guess. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever done it. 
I've never given flumazenil to a hepatic encephalopathic patient. Me neither. But I, I could wonder, see why it would why. be used. Because mm-hmm. I imagine like if you want to make those receptors start firing like they should, if they're like suppressed, right? Hmm. I mean, well, and I wonder if it's not, one of those, yeah. like if you have your patient that comes in through emergency and it's seizuring and you give it a benzo, you know, yeah. do you go, oh, we need to give it a, some flumazenol because we just put more benzo in. I wonder, I mean, I, I don't know. It's interesting. Honestly, the only time I've ever given it is when we were like in the midst of CPR. So (laughs) as I mean, oh shit, let's be real. (laughs) The treatment treatment was, did not say flumazenil. So I guess if the goal for treatment is benzodiazepine antagonist, it just means that it wants that those GABA benzodiazepine receptors to start working. Like that's the goal of treatment appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. So treatment would be correcting all the imbalances that are causing those to not fire correctly. That makes sense. Yeah. Anyway. And then the last goal of treatment is to lower brain pressure. So again, we want to correct dehydration. We want to correct our electrolytes. We want to correct our acid base imbalances with IV fluids. So typically what is used is two and a half percent dextrose in a, I call it a half strength saline solution. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's 0.45% saline solution with potassium chloride, obviously based on their electrolyte levels and then a vitamin B complex. Cause we're just really trying to get those balanced electrolytes and vitamins and stuff within that bloodstream. Mm -hmm. LRS should be avoided though in these patients because lactate. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Beyond. We don't need any more lactate circulating in the body. And I think um, LRS also has, does it have ammonia in it? I feel like it, I feel like it does. There's, I think there's another um, metabolite in there that it also does not appreciate. Mm, I just brain. read about lactate. Um, enemas can be used. So it's recommended to do three parts lactulose um, or lactitol. Lactitol. I've, I've never, never used even that. heard of lactitol. Me either. It sounds like, like old school. <laughs> yeah. Two seven parts of water um, at like a 20 mil per kg dose kind of thing. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then what you should do is to retain the enema solution within the colon for 15 to 20 minutes. And that can be achieved by using like a Foley catheter. And so like inflating that balloon to try to keep it all in for 15 to 20 minutes. Or a tampon. Just saying. <laughs> or that too. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah, I've seen that used as well. <laughs> and then metronidazole and neomycin. I've only ever used metronidazole, but again, like Yvonne had assumed earlier before we got to this part, it can decrease so colonic cool. populations <laughs> of ammonia producing organisms as well as those other bacteria. I wonder, do, do, mm, I'm guessing that those organisms are normal GI flora. Um, cause I, cause I, you know, if we're using metronidazole, I, I mean, I don't definitely haven't seen like probiotics being used for these guys. Um, so yeah. So uh, there usually... actually is like, there was some information on the use of probiotics, but it hasn't been studied widely. So that's why I didn't put a whole lot of it in here. So there's speculations that using probiotics could help, but there's just not studies to back it up. Just to kind of get the GI biome a little bit. Yeah. Because they said, yeah, yeah. You could do the Greek yogurt and probiotics and stuff. So I put it down in the to Mm -hmm. go home thing because why not, you know, 
<laughs> well, and I mean, I guess it just depends. Like, cause you know, if, if the bacteria, if some of your good GI bacteria produce mercaptans, mm-hmm. um, I would like guess just naturally. That, yeah. I would guess that probiotics, you know, it's a question like, do the probiotics repopulate some of those good GI bacteria that normally produce mercaptans that in a normal dog would not be a problem, but obviously in this one. So I wonder, it's interesting. It'd be, I'm sure at some point there will be studies on this. <laughs> oh, um, I'm sure. But yeah, interesting. And then it's recommended to use low doses of metronidazole just because we also want to avoid metronidazole toxicity in these patients because that mm-hmm. can definitely happen. So when I say low doses, I mean like less than 7.5 milligrams per kg. But again, your doctor should be coming up with that dose. But if for some mm-hmm. reason you see like a normal dose of like, I mean, our normal is like 11 to 15 megs per kg. Yeah. Maybe just mention something to your doctor and be like, maybe we should go a little lower. Or, or, or you say, Hey, why are why? you going with the normal dose? Why wouldn't you <laughs> open the conversation? <laughs> exactly. Um, I guess, y- you know, and this is, well, you know, when we're talking quality of life too, right. Um, good client communication is going to be key on this because hopefully they're going to be doing their best to manage these guys at home. Um, so we can prolong their good quality of life because obviously if they're not having, I, I think we probably even talked about this in the portal, portal systemic shunt conversation, you know, it is just because they're there doesn't mean they're having a good quality of life. So that client communication is really big that, you know, if, if they're starting to have increased signs, you know, we can adjust medications and, and, and just making sure, you know, we don't want their brain hemorrhaging. Yeah. And depending on the type or the cause for your hepatic encephalopathy, obviously if we have like an extra hepatic, obvious portosystemic shunt, it can be corrected with surgery, Mm -hmm. which is what my patient was who like came in comatose. It was a very like kind of obvious, simple, yet simple shunt that was corrected and the patient's doing great now. Um, but not all shunts can be corrected. If it's chronic liver disease, you can't necessarily correct that. If, especially if it's like cirrhosis protein restricted diets are recommended. Cause again, those bacteria in the gut are breaking down protein and then forming ammonia. Um, so if we restrict some of that protein, then there's not as much ammonia being circulated throughout the body lactulose, um, titrated to low dose just to avoid diarrhea. And then probiotics again, just to kind of avoid bacterial overgrowth and maybe repopulate the gut, but that's Mm. based on, I'm assuming that's just going to be doctor preference because my doctor doesn't typically do that. And then metronidazole or amoxicillin, this is going to be long-term and that reduces the toxins within the GI tract. Yeah, I it's it's interesting because I just had um, actually yesterday uh, had one of our uh, HE patients come in and um, because so this is one of those tricky things too with long term management. So she's on amoxicillin long term, um, but she ended up having a urinary tract infection. So we you know put her on clavamox because that's what it was susceptible to. But it's like the follow up um, urinary you know, 
here in culture. I was like, I kind of want to do a low colony count because she's still on antibiotics. So it was, you know, just kind of one of those things in the back of your mind when you're, when you're dealing with these kids, you know, you might have to just think outside the box a little bit, um, for other things that may end up happening too. Because again, if you've got high liver values, they're probably going to be PUPD as well. But if they're still PUPD, you know, maybe there's something else going on. So, and probiotics, I think there's some studies out there that say that some of the probiotics can help with like bladder health as well. So I don't know. It's interesting. I think it'd be an interesting conversation to have with your doctors to be like, Hey, you know, would we want to try probiotics for this pet? Yeah. And then like Yvonne kind of already said, long-term or client communication is pretty key here because this is going to be long-term therapy or it's going to be surgical, or it's going to be one of those things where we, we just need to keep the lines of communication open. So if a pet starts showing even vague symptoms, the owners feel comfortable enough to call and say like, I'm seeing this, is this a symptom? Do we need to adjust medications? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, like I said, surgical therapy to correct shunt may be recommended. Um, but even if you correct it with surgery, sometimes you can have other shunting that can't be corrected at the same time. So you might still need long-term therapy. So a lot of clients need to be aware of that though, too. Yeah. And even, um, even if they didn't present with like seizures as part of their clinical signs and they do pursue like surgical shunting, they're more likely to develop seizures after shunting too. So making sure owners are like aware of that too, that like, well, yeah, we might be fixing the shunt problem, which would help. It could actually tip the, you know, brain neurotransmitter scales into developing seizure disorder that they have to manage too. So yeah, I didn't know that. I mean, I, I, it makes sense because I'm sure there's, I don't know if I'm going to call it damage, but you know, those cells have been like programmed for a certain level of something. So I can imagine right. like just long-term that they're used to whatever that is. <laughs> is. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of keeping an eye out on it and, um, just to kind of backtrack a little bit. So the other thing too, when we're hospitalized, um, doing amino, uh, amino acid transfusions. Um, this is, so we usually use, uh, percalamine is like one of the big ones for these patients, it, especially if they do have like a severe imbalance and it may be that you just do it once or, you know, they may need to come in for more frequent transfusions. And yeah, like, um, I think Jordan mentioned it, um, she's definitely done it for the hepatic cutaneous syndrome kids, but I've also done it for one of our HE patients. Um, and the big thing to remember, if you are doing that, it is um, more osmotic. So we usually do not like a jugular central line, but I've used like a peripheral central line uh, just to kind of help get it a little bit further in and not cause uh um, phlebitis and stuff like that. So, so cautions for this, just that I found interesting when I was reading. So there's just a number of factors, like kind of outside factors that can change blood ammonia concentrations. So in turn promote HE. So if we have mm-hmm. a potential liver shunt patient or a chronic liver disease patient, there's a couple of things that can actually like kind of push them closer to HE. So things like dehydration, like PUPD, um, like pre-renal or renal acetemia. So again, if, if things just aren't filtering as properly as they should, 
blood changes like hypoglycemia, hypokalemia, hemolysis, alkalemia. Um, that can push them closer to HE infection because infection can just send the whole body like haywire. Um, (laughs) (laughs) catabolism, anorexia, constipation, GI hemorrhage, blood transfusions. We've talked about this before about like Mm, just the ammonia level, especially, um, in our like bags that are close to expiration, Mm -hmm. um, high protein diets can also push them over. So again, we're recommending a low protein diet. So the bacteria in the gut doesn't have to work as hard and produce as much ammonia. And then drugs like our benzodiazepines, antihistamines, um, tetracyclines, barbiturates, organophosphates, phenothiazines, and then just certain anesthetics. And then also, of course, we have a possible overdosage of our diuretics and or metronidazole. Yeah, I, uh, I think I think it's just important for homeostasis. That's that's my word for the day. Homeostasis. <laughs> Is that your tip of the week? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's the tip of the week. So I chose for the tip of the week benzodiazepine and other forms of sedatives should be avoided in these patients, just because, like Brittany kind of explained to us, like it just causes more depression and can actually push us further into HE than it can pull us out of it. Hmm. Yeah, that was, thanks, Brittany, for explaining it. Sure. (laughs) And now for the question of the week. So question of the week this week, just because again, my first case of like real severe uh, HE was an eight month old Maltese with a shunt, obviously. Mm -hmm. But what breed was your first HE case? I'm interested to see if someone's like, mine was a cat. (laughs) I think my first one was a beagle. Which is funny, but it was, I think it was a beagle. Yeah, mine was definitely a Maltese. I don't know what my first one was, but we had like a little, oh, what's this like little gremlin looking thing? Oh, like a, a Brussels um, Griffon or whatever. Oh, yeah. Was like, well, I had one of those that uh, that we dealt with in my application year and she was in my application. I think she was even one of my um, case reports. Not Did she show signs of aggression? No, she like all Brussels were just mean. No, she was just dumber than a box of rocks. (laughs) Because her poor brain wasn't working. So she was just derpy as could be. (laughs) They're kind of, they're kind of cute when they're that derpy and you're like, we're going to try to fix you. Yeah, we got her, we got her a lot better. She certainly wasn't a hundred percent normal, but you know, mom was happy with where we got her. So nice. We did our job. (laughs) right (laughs) and then jordan's got a bunch of resources um for this episode there's some vin some merc uh some acvs um so definitely check out the show notes for some of those those links and we'll also link for the uh, episodes as well um anything else you guys want to touch on on hepatic encephalopathy this week before we uh head out for a little bit of a much needed holiday break um we could probably mention that in just a second no other th- other than our holiday break no so um next week for the next two episodes so the next two weeks so that should be the week of christmas and the week of new year's jordan and i are taking a brain break <laughs> see what i did there guys <laughs> no you guys don't think it's jordan's staring at me like i'm crazy so <laughs> I was trying um, to decide if it warranted a sympathy laugh. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> um, 
Um, so we're just going to take a little break and we're going to pull two episodes from our vault um, that, you know, it's kind of our, one of some of our popular episodes and we hope you check those out. We've recorded a little bit of fun intros, kind of looking back at those episodes. So check that out. And then um, we'll be back January, January 5th. Wow. God, January 5th of 2021, which will be exciting. And um, Brittany's still going to be with us, <laughs> at least so far. Maybe she we might be gone. <laughs> we haven't run her away yet. Um, and yeah, so let us know. You know, you can reach us on our Facebook, answer the question a week there, answer it in our Internal Medicine for Vet Techs membership site, um, or you can email us. There's so many ways to get a hold of us. And then um, we'll we'll talk to you uh, in uh, 2021. Sound good? Woo. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good holidays, you guys. Keep getting your learn on. Try not to stress too much because the holidays do that to us. And uh, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.